It is good to be in the house of the Lord. As we just sing, uh, Pastor Jonathan is down at the Danville campus and uh, he sends you his greetings. Um, we've been going through the Bible this year all the way through from Genesis 1-1 all the way through Revelation. We'll conclude in December. And so we've been making our way now through the New Testament. Last week, Matt Wilmington gave us a wonderful message out of 1 Timothy. And now we arrive at 2 Timothy, a very, very important and powerful letter in the New Testament because these are the final words of the Apostle Paul. Uh, final words carry a lot of weight, don't they? I don't know if you've ever... Uh, watched a movie where the, the scene is intense and you, you see somebody dying and they're, they're sharing their final words. It's almost like in that movie, you just lean in a little closer, your, your ears perk up a little bit more because these are words that carry a lot of weight. These are important words. This is the final thoughts of someone who is dying. That's why I love this book so much, because of the intensity of the words from Paul. He knows his time is coming to an end. This is the second time he's been in prison in Rome. It's 66 AD. The first time was under house arrest. He was there for two years. The reason he was there for two years, because according to Roman law, you had two years for your accusers to show up for trial. Well, and remember the trials of Felix and Festus up there in Caesarea, and then Paul makes his way to Rome, and he appeals to Rome for a verdict, and, and he is sitting there in house arrest with a lot of freedom. He had friends and things come, and he wrote several letters from there, and uh, it was a pretty, pretty easy situation considering the fact that he was uh, still under guard and under arrest that first time in Rome, and, and he's waiting for two years for his accusers from Israel to show up for a sentence, but they never show. And you get to the book of Acts, the last chapter, and you realize that they didn't show up, and so Paul is released. And that's kind of where the story ends, but then now you find in 2 Timothy that Paul is back in prison, but this time it's not under house arrest. This time he's in chains. This time he's 12 feet underground in a, in a former cistern called the Mamertine Prison, it's, a, it's, it's, it's wet, it's damp, it's cold. And I believe he wrote this letter in late fall of 66 AD because he's asking Timothy and some of his friends to come visit him before winter. He asked for them to bring his coat. It's the only complaint that he even hints at making in this entire book, even though he's in a situation where there's no food, there's no clothing, there's no shelter, there's no heat, there's no bed to lay on, there's no pillow. It's just this deep, dark dungeon. And this is the actual dungeon. You can go there in Rome. The only thing that wasn't there at the time of Paul was that altar. The Catholics put that altar there as a, as a place of worship where Paul would spend his last days. And Paul is awaiting his trial. You see, this cistern, this prison, was where you went before you were to be executed. Peter spent time in this very same dungeon shortly before Paul was there. And the reason they're there is because Nero is in power as the emperor, and the city of Rome burned down in 64 AD. Now, most historians agree that Nero's the one who caused the fire. And the reason he did is because he wanted to put this 100-acre palatial golden palace right in the center of Rome. And the only way to do that was to get rid of what was there. And so it's believed that Nero's the one that set his own city on fire. 
thousands of lives lost, all kinds of damage. And that's actually four, uh, 10 of the 14 provinces of Rome there in that, in that region, that whole city, were burned or severely, really damaged. But it was also a very convenient time to blame somebody else for the burning. And what better people to blame than this young, rebellious sect of atheists, as the Romans would call them, because they were monotheists. They didn't believe in lots of gods. They just believed in one god. They worshipped this Messiah, this Jewish man by the name of Jesus, believed that he raised from the dead, and they considered Christians crazy. And so what better time and what more convenient time than to persecute and even get rid of these Christians than to blame them for burning the city of Rome. And that's exactly what Nero did. And so when Paul and Peter are arrested somewhere around 65 AD, it is in this situation right here. Nero is blaming the Christians for the burning of Rome. And so now there is a great persecution going on all around the empire of Rome arresting and punishing and torturing Christians. And I won't go into much detail, but I would encourage you to read what Nero did to believers in that day. It's horrific. And Paul now is sitting there awaiting his trial and his certain execution. And while he's awaiting this, in such horrible circumstances as this dungeon, he writes this incredible encouraging, uplifting, and empowering letter to his young protege, Timothy. Timothy had been a pastor now for several years at the church of Ephesus. Timothy is now a middle-aged man. Paul is in his early 60s, and Paul is looking back over 30 years of ministry that he's had with Timothy, and he's saying, listen, remember this. It's almost like a dad looking at his son, holding him by the shoulders and say, look, I got one last thing to tell you, son. Please don't miss this. This is the setting. Last words can be powerful. Last words can be interesting too, can't they? <laughs> Groucho Marx was laying there dying and his last words were these. Wow, this is no way to live. <laughs> Joseph Henry Green was laying there dying. He was a surgeon and he was actually, even at the point of his death, still doing experiments and, and, and trying to learn about the human body. And so he was literally checking his own pulse as he was laying there dying. And his last word was this, stopped. That's weird, isn't it? But appropriate. Michael Landon, famous actor, is dying of cancer. It's a beautiful moment with his family. They were gathered around, and his son leaned over and whispered in his ears, Dad, it's okay to move on. And Michael Landon looked at his family and he said, You're right. It's time. I love you all. And he died. What a beautiful way to go. And I'll never forget the last words of my grandfather. I was not in the room when he passed away. I was on the phone with him shortly before maybe an hour or two before he passed away. I was on the phone with him. I was a 10-year-old boy. I was living in Portland, Oregon. He was in Greenville, South Carolina. And I'll never forget those last four words I heard from my grandfather. It was nothing special, but he just said these four words. I'll be seeing you. And I'll never forget that. Hmm. So imagine this letter as these final words of Paul. A dying man. And he writes these words in the final chapter of this letter. Verse 6, chapter 4. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering. 
That is a reference to Genesis chapter 35, verse 14, where the drink offering would be the last part of the sacrifice being made. They would pour the wine at the base of the altar. And the time of my departure is at hand, Paul says. The Greek word for departure is a, group, is a word called analysios. It gives us a great picture. It's a nautical term and it's also a military term. I love the nautical way that this is looked at because for a sailor, this word departure basically means this. You are taking up the lines from the ship and we are setting sail for one last final voyage. That's the picture that Paul is painting. And then he says these words, verse 7, very famous verse. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. I'm using those three phrases as the three points of this message, but I'm going to do them in a different order. So the points of today's message are simply this, fight the good fight, keep the faith, and then lastly, finish the race. Let's talk about finishing strong. It's been a phrase in my life that for 35 years. I've loved that phrase ever since I read the book by Steve Farrar called Finishing Strong. By the way, if you've never read that book, I would highly suggest you get that book and dive into it today, especially if you're a man. It's a, it's a book written to men. And I read this book as a young man. I was 22 years old. And it inspired me so much that I started a foundation called the Finish Strong Foundation. And I wanted to help pastors and missionaries finish well financially and physically and spiritually and everything else. And I jumped into this thing and I did, a, I did a fundraiser for it. And I actually had Steve Farrar come speak for it. And I couldn't believe as a 22-year-old kid, this guy who's a kind of a big deal author would fly from Dallas to Atlanta and speak to 40 people in a, in a golf tournament for a 22-year-old kid who doesn't know anybody. And he did this out of the goodness of his heart. And I took every dollar I could out of my ministry. I gave him a $400 check and I bought him a watch. And he handed it all back to me and he said, no, nah, son, this is the beginning of your ministry. I want to see you finish strong. Whew. Well, unfortunately, the Finish Strong Foundation didn't finish real well. <laughs> I, uh, it's no longer around. But that man inspired me, and, um, and he still does to this day. We talked just last week on the phone. So the first point I have for you today is simply this. Fight the good fight. Live your life with no retreats. Hmm. You remember that Joshua Chamberlain story in Civil War at the Battle of Gettysburg when he's down to the last few men, their last few bullets, and he doesn't know what to do. He doesn't want to retreat. And so he just charged down the mountain. And in this crazy story, you got to read it, in this crazy story, one of the most lopsided victories in the history of all wars, this few men end up capturing all kinds of rebel soldiers and basically end up winning the, Gettysburg, the Battle of Gettysburg because of this one bold, courageous, insanity of 20 seconds move that Joshua Chamberlain did. And later on, they asked him, why did you do something so crazy and so bold? And he said, because I had within me at that moment the inability to do nothing. I had within me the ability inability to do nothing. Folks, people who fight the good fight have the inability to do nothing. Paul is giving us a picture of a soldier in a battle. In fact, in chapter 2 of 2 Timothy, Paul says to, to Timothy, look, you're to endure the hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. So to fight any fight presumes that you're actually on a battlefield, right? 
And if you're going to fight the good fight as a believer, we're making the presumption that as a believer, you're actually on the battlefield. It's been said that the Christian life is is not lived out on a playground. It's lived out on a battlefield. So every day you wake up, you need to remember that you are at war. Bullets may not be flying, but I promise you, fiery darts will be. You'll be tempted. You'll be stressed. You'll be confronted, and you'll have to confront Satan would love nothing more than to, to see another soldier leave the battlefield because you're wounded or, or, you're, or you've been ruined by moral failure or, or some addiction of some sort or, or simply apathy has set in. But folks, you don't just want to fight. You want to fight the good fight. So what is the good fight that Paul's talking about? Well, it's the, it's the fight for the faith, both publicly and privately. Every decision you make in the middle of a battle will be what eventually determines the result of the battle. And you want to win the battle. Battles are part of a war. And as Christians, we can rest assured that as his children and as soldiers in the Lord's army, we are on the winning side. Listen, the war is already won because the battle is the Lord's. And you can go to the end of your Bible and discover we end up winning in the end. That's not the issue today I want to talk about. What I want to talk about is you as a soldier in the Lord's army, are you going to fight to the end? Will you be there? Will you finish strong for you personally? How are you doing in the battle? Are you winning the personal battle against sin? I play a lot of racquetball, and sometimes I get behind in a game, and it drives me crazy. But one thing I've learned about winning, and this is important, especially in a tournament, win is is an acrostic that I learned a long time ago, and I love it, and I use it in the middle of of a game. Win stands for what's important now. You can't think about what just happened. I can't think about what's going to happen after the game. I have to think about one thing and one thing only, the next shot that I'm about to take. Golfers can't think about birdieing a hole until they make a good drive, right? It's one shot, one moment at a time. So you have to ask yourself this question before you end up sacrificing your entire future or your entire testimony on the altar of some temporary satisfaction. You have to ask yourself, is what I'm doing right now worth it. What's important now? You can win against sin, but you must have the mindset of a warrior to do so. You're a soldier of the cross, and you can choose to fight about anything, but to fight the good fight means that we have to do three things. Choose our battles carefully, first of all. Why waste your time battling over things that don't matter? Why spend time fighting with other believers for crying out loud? I can't believe what I read online and what I see. It's just like fighting amongst believers. Folks, we're on the same team here. We're all the same at the foot of the cross. And we're battling a world that's dying and going to hell at an unprecedented pace. Jump in together. Let's serve with unity. And fight for the good things, like our, our family's well-being, our, our, our children's education. You know, we, we, we bark a lot about what schools are teaching, but none of us show up at the school board meeting. If you want to change the education system, then show up. Don't just complain about it. Do something. Think about who or what has influence in your life. Fight for what is decent for what is righteous, for what is holy, for what is moral. Fight for justice, fight for peace, fight for freedom, fight for the unborn, fight for the faith. There's a battle raging in our nation and it's raging worse than I've ever seen it. And we can't afford just to talk about it. 
And we can't afford just to stay silent anymore. We must do something. But you gotta remember the battle is fueled by the supernatural powers of darkness who want nothing less than the total destruction of all that is godly and good. You see, it's not your neighbor that you're having the battle with, or should be. It's not politicians that we should be yelling at. We have to understand that those who don't know the Lord are lost. And the Bible reminds us, Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, that the God of this age, little g, Satan himself, has blinded the mind and the eyes of the unbeliever. They cannot see the light of the truth of the glory of Christ. So it's our job to point them to the truth. And we do this using our weaponry that God has given us. Right? So it's not a military issue. Instead, we use weapons of war called love and mercy and grace. So choose your battles carefully. Soldiers don't just meet on the battlefield to talk about it. You must be prepared for battle. And that's the second point. Stay prepared for battle. In order to do that, you've got to remember that every day you're in a war. And it's not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and against rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts and wickedness, even in the heavenly places, Paul says. So you've got to put on the armor of God. We put up this graphic a few weeks ago. Jonathan put it up during our study in Ephesians. And it's a great graphic because it just reminds you what the armor of God is. This is how you get dressed as a believer every morning. You put on the helmet of salvation. You put on the breastplate of righteousness. You put on the shield of faith. You put on those feet that are protected by the gospel of peace. You bear the sword of the spirit. And most of all, you gird yourself with the belt of absolute truth. This is how you are to get dressed every morning as a believer. And then you go out for the battle and you know how you fight? From your knees. What's our song say? Phil Wickham wrote it. So when I fight, I fight on my knees with my hands lifted high. Oh God, the battle belongs to you. So we pray. We pray like it depends on God. Then we work like it depends on us. And our primary weapon is the love of God. Mercy and grace and peacemaking and wise words and gentle answers or forgiveness, they're pretty good weapons too. So you got no need to fear, but jump in the battle and fight the good fight for his kingdom and for the faith every day for the rest of your life. That's what Paul is telling young Timothy. Look, buddy, it's not going to get any easier, but don't quit. Don't give up. Keep fighting. So how do you fight the good fight? Well, you win one single battle at a time. Like it or not, you're in a war for your soul. And this is a war you cannot afford to lose, but you're already on the winning side. So now live your life in the confidence that he will help you overcome. Fight the good fight, no retreats. Secondly, keep the faith. Live your life with no regrets. Now, in the first phrase, fight the good fight, Paul gives us the picture of a soldier going to war. In the second phrase, Paul gives us a picture with this, this phrase, keep the faith. He gives us a picture of the diligence of a farmer. In fact, he mentions it in chapter 2, verse 6. The hard-working farmer must be the first to partake of the crops. So be diligent, he says in verse 15. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, but rightly dividing the word of truth. Farmers are diligent, they're consistent, they're committed, and they're certainly not lazy. And they understand the law of the harvest that you reap what you sow. So how do you stay faithful? How do you keep the faith? Well, you live a long obedience in the same direction. One single day at a time. 
You win one single day at a time. You win, you fight the good fight by winning one battle at a time. You keep the faith by winning one single day at a time. And how do you do that? Well, two ways. Faithfulness in the work and faithfulness to the word. Paul was faithful in the work, wasn't he? And it cost him a lot. I mean, the suffering this man endured. I have it listed here in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, all the things that he endured. I'll just list you one thing that he mentions. He says, five times I received 40 stripes minus one. Y'all, that's when they take the cat of nine tails and beat you until this right at the point of death. The reason they wouldn't give you 40 stripes is because typically at 40 stripes, people died from loss of blood. Five times he's endured just that, not to mention the shipwrecks and the beatings and the stonings and everything else. Five times he did that. Just think about that, y'all. That's 195 deep, dark, horrendous scars on the back of this one man's back. Just that. Not to mention everything else that the man endured. In perils, he says, in perils of this, in perils of that. All the things that he endured, all the suffering, but in the through it all, he was faithful in the work, but he was also faithful to the word. And he's encouraging Timothy, stay faithful in the word. He says, I charge you therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing and in the kingdom. Verse two of chapter four, he says, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with long suffering and teaching. And you know what? These words inspired Timothy so much that he did just that. And 45 years after this letter is written, Timothy at 80 years old is standing in the middle of the street in his hometown of Ephesus, still pastoring that church, still preaching the word, still staying faithful. And at 80 years old, there's a parade going on in the middle of the street uh, in honor of the pagan god of, of Diana horrible pagan worship and they're in the middle of the street and Timothy is standing in the middle of the street and he's preaching against it and he's preaching the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and the people got so tired of hearing him that they beat him within an inch of his life and two days later he finally passed away because of those injuries at 80 years old he did exactly what Paul told him to do he stayed faithful to the work and he stayed faithful to the word so how do you stay faithful well, you live your life with no regrets, and you do it one day at a time. Win one day at a time. John Wooden said this prior to his 100th birthday. He said, make each day your masterpiece. And when you do that as the weeks and the months and the years unfold behind you, you'll have the deepest self-satisfaction knowing your life has really meant something. You will have achieved the most important kind of success, namely becoming the best that you're capable of being. Now. Add to that the mindset and a heart that is bent on pleasing the Lord in all things, and you will have the recipe for finishing well. Paul says, I have fought the good fight, no retreats. I have kept the faith, no regrets. But lastly, he says this, I have finished the race. My last point to you this morning is simply this, finish strong. Finish the race with no reserves. Did you ever have a day when you worked so hard and so long, but at the same time, the work was exactly what you're called to do? You just know it, and you're fulfilled in doing this, and you lay your head on the bed, and you worked 21 hours that day. I mean, I've had so many days like that where I just, I, I, you know, I go all the way down somewhere, sing, and I'll drive till 4 in the morning coming back. But when I lay my head on the pillow at 4 a.m. after traveling all night long, I have a sense of fulfillment in the midst of my exhaustion. You know why? because I'm doing exactly what I'm supposed to be doing. 
that's the kind of spirit that you get from these words from Paul to Timothy. Look, you're going to be suffering. You're going to be tired. You're going to be exhausted. But you're going to be fulfilled knowing that you gave it all. Live your life with no reserves. Finish strong. He gives us in this phrase the picture of an athlete. So he's given us the picture of a soldier. He's given us the picture of a farmer. And now finally, we're given the picture of an athlete, specifically a long-distance runner. You know, marathon runners don't start off just running marathons, do they? No, they start off running one mile at a time, and they build up. Dr. Falwell used to always tell us about BHAGs. He would talk about big, hairy, audacious goals. Remember that? I'm not really sure why the word hairy's in there, but it's there. And so he'd talk about big, hairy, audacious goals. And I used to be so inspired by that. It's written, it actually comes from Jim Collins' book, Good to Great. And I was always inspired by that. And I thought to myself, man, I need a, I need a BHAG in my life. And so I'd write some down. But you know, the, the secret to accomplishing BHAGs is another little phrase that I coined myself. I call them LAGs, little accomplishable goals. And in order to accomplish a BHAG, you got to break it down into little accomplishable goals that you can uh, achieve as time goes on. And as time goes on and you begin to incremate your way towards that BHAG, you look back one day and realize, hey, I accomplished the BHAG by way of little accomplishable goals. And that's exactly the mindset of a marathon runner. They start off running one mile at a time, then two, then three, then four, and then one day, 26.2 miles. But he starts by running one step at a time. Hmm. According to a study by psychologists Dr. Killingsworth and Dr. Gilbert, the average person spends 46.9% of their time thinking about something other than what they're actually doing in that present moment. Did you catch that? Almost half of the time that we are anywhere, we're only engaged half the time. That means that right now, only half of you are actually listening to what I'm saying. The rest of you are thinking about lunch or breakfast or whatever might be humming. So we're only present half the time. I love what Mark Batterson says. He says, the only way to fully be alive is to fully be present. We must be fully present, actively engaged in our hearts and in our minds, in the moment, and fully aware of who we are and what we're doing in order to finish strong. We gotta stay alert. So can I just ask you something this morning? How are you doing in that? If you keep going the way you're going, will you finish strong? If you keep taking what you're taking, are you gonna finish strong? If you keep watching what you're watching, will you finish strong? If you keep doing what you're doing, are you gonna finish strong? If you keep seeing who you're seeing, are you going to finish strong? Or are you going to stumble and fall and fail and falter and fall by the wayside like millions before you simply because they didn't stay alert? They didn't stay the course. I have a list in my phone. It's a long list and it's growing. It's a little note in my phone called the fallen. And every once in a while, I'll just look at that list. They're all my friends. They're all my buddies who at one day were flying high in ministry. And then they broke their wings, disqualified themselves because they didn't stay alert. None of us are exempt from that. 
all of us are one moment away from massive failure. Stay alert and stay the course. The key to finishing well is to live your life as a long obedience in the same direction. And it's going to require a lot of focus, a lot of energy, and a lot of discipline. The Christian life is not for the faint of heart. The Christian life is not an easy one. It is not always your best life now. But stay the course anyway, Paul tells Timothy. Stay the course. There was a race in ancient Greece. I love this race. It's going on way even before the time of Christ. It's the beginnings of the Olympic Games. And in in the Olympic Games, they had a race called the Lampadodromia. Took me four days to figure out how to say that. And in this race, the runners, it was the beginnings of what we would call the 400 meter relay or something, but they would light a torch for every race, every racer, every runner, and they would run. And then when they would get to the point, they would hand the torch to another runner, and then he would run. And he would do this throughout four different runners. And the object of the race was not necessarily to be in first place because the first place prize in the Lampadodromia didn't go to the first place winners. The first place prize went to the team who finished first with their torch still lit. So the pressure's off, folks. You don't have to finish first. You don't have to be the richest one in your neighborhood or the best at anything or the most successful or the big boss of a company or the most popular to ever live. All God wants you to do is finish faithful. Just finish with your torch still lit. That's what God wants. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. I'm going to let it shine. And I'm going to keep on letting it shine until the day I die. It was 1992, his name was Derek Redmond. It was the Barcelona Olympic Games. Derek Redmond was favored to win the 400 meter race. He already held several European records and he was by far the favored runner. The gun goes off, Derek is in lane number three. He has a good start, he's running the race well. He rounds the fourth corner, you know, of course, the 400 meters one time around the track. He rounds the fourth corner, heading towards that last 100 meters. He's in good position, looks good, everything's going well, and suddenly, and by the way, you can go on YouTube and watch this entire thing go down. It's the most amazing thing you'll ever watch. I would highly encourage you to do it, and at that moment, you just see him go like this. Oh! Derek had not just pulled his right hamstring, he ripped it. He's in agony. And you can see him sort of limping along the racetrack like this for a bit. And then he just falls. And he lays there and he's weeping. And he's in pain and he's also in agony because he's, there's no way he's going to win. The race is over by now. And then you see him begin to try to pick himself back up. And then you see the most amazing thing. From the back of the video, you can see this man. He's come out of the stands, and he's running towards Derek. And you can see the officials from the Olympics. They got their walkie-talkies. They got their earpieces on. They're like, no, 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 get
get away, get away. And they're pushing him away, and he's shoving these guys. And you can tell him, you can even read the words on his lips. You can see him saying these words, but I'm his father. Derek's father, Jim, had come out of the stands, and he gets to Derek, and he bends over, and he lifts Derek up, and he puts Derek over his shoulders, and Derek and his father limp their way all the way to the finish line. And just before they cross the finish line, Derek's father, Jim, lets go of him so he can cross the finish line in his own power to the eruption of 65,000 people who are standing there breathless. And it's the most amazing picture of what it is to finish strong in my book. Because see, some would say Derek didn't finish strong at all. He was injured. He was, he was weaker than ever. But I would beg to differ because I would say, oh yes, he did finish strong, perhaps stronger than he ever could have ever dreamed of finishing because he didn't just finish in his own power. He finished relying on the strength of his father. Derek was only able to finish that race with the help of his father. And so are you. You don't need to try this on your own. The Christian life is not hard. It's impossible. You're going to stumble. You're going to fail. You want him to tear a hamstring. You're going to fall. But when God the Father sees you stumbling down the track, you can rest assured that he will leap out of those stands and he will run to you and he will carry you to your eternal home. Listen to what Paul tells Timothy in chapter 4. At the very end of the letter, he says, the Lord stood with me and he strengthened me so that the message might be preached fully through me, that all the Gentiles might hear. Also, I was delivered out of the mouth of the lion and the Lord will deliver me from every evil week and the Lord will preserve me for his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. So can I give you one more point, folks? Focus on the reward. Focus on the reward. Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day. And not to me only, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Folks, until that day, live with the intensity of a soldier and fight the good fight. It's worth it. No retreats. Win one battle at a time. Live with the consistency of a farmer and keep the faith. No regrets. Win one day at a time and live with the perseverance of a marathon runner and finish the race. No reserves. Win one step, one moment, one decision at a time. Because if you can do that, then you can win the day. And if you can win the day, then you can win the battle. And ultimately, you will receive your eternal reward. So as long as there is breath in your bones, folks, no matter what you've done, no matter what your past says it is, no matter what your future holds, what's important now is that you win in this moment right here, right now. And as long as there's breath in your body, you can still do so. You can and must finish strong. So with heads bowed and eyes closed, can I ask you again, how's the race going? How you doing? Have you fallen? Have you stumbled? You know what's so great about that is all of us do, but what's even better is that the grace of the Lord Jesus can overcome it all. You're here and you're breathing, which means God still has a plan and a purpose for your life. 
Don't waste it. Run this race for him. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, would you stand? And I'm just going to ask you, if you would, to consider where you are in him. If you're running off course, and if you continue in the direction you're heading, are you going to finish strong? If not, then why don't you make an about face right now? Come back to Jesus. Come back. Get back on course. But maybe there's some of you here tonight and this morning, and, you, and you're not even on the course. You've never given your life to Christ. You don't know what it is to have hope in Him. Well, can I just tell you, it all starts there. That is the beginning of life itself. So if you're here this morning and there's an emptiness in your soul and you don't know Christ, would you come? Would you come down to this altar and simply give your heart to Him? That puts you on the right course towards finishing a well-lived lived life. Not only that, but this life, when we get to the end of it, it's the short one. The long one is eternity. And you, trust me, eternity is too long to be wrong. You want to be on the right side with Christ. So there's the invitation. If you've strayed off course as a believer, come back. Jump back in the race. Jump back. But if you've never gotten on course and you've never come to know Christ, then come down. Take one of these pastors by the hand and simply say something like this. Hey, I need to get on course with Jesus. I don't think I've ever met him. We would love to introduce you to him. I want to thank you for joining with us today. If you've never come to the place of recognition of being a sinner and needing a Savior, you can do so right now. Believing that Jesus died on the cross for your sins and rose again to give you eternal life. Just ask Him to save you today. Now, if you'd like to talk further about what it is that God has done for you in the giving of His Son, Jesus, we'd love to chat with you about that information. I would encourage you to email me at the address that is on the screen. It's pastor at trbc.org. We would love to connect with you to help you begin a brand new journey with Jesus Christ in your life. If you'd also like to help contribute to our ministries, we take this message of the gospel around the world. Go to the link on the screen today and help us help others with the amazing message of God's love. Help us let people know that God loves them, that Christ died for them, and that we can find hope in Jesus.